Welcome to Traveling Culturati, where we explore cultures and share travel news, travel tips, destinations, and travel chats. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Well, hey there, fellow Culturati. Javon Harley here, your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. Welcome back to another week of travel adventure. (laughs) Make sure you sign up for the newsletter, connect with me on social media, and join the travel club. You can do it all at TravelingCulturati.com. But I have to tell you, the uh, social media pages, that's where it's all happening. That's where it's at. (laughs) You definitely want to connect with me on social media. I recently went to Croatia on a site inspection last month. And I'm really excited to share my experience with you. So today, I'm taking you on tour with me. I collected some interviews with the various guides that I met from Split to Croatia. It's all called the Dalmatia region. And so, yeah, it's all wild. And so you're going to hear church bells. You're going to hear background noise, sometimes heavy winds. It's happening right there in the moment. And I really wanted to share that experience with you as I was experiencing it. So I fell in love with Croatia and I hope you will too. Actually, I think you will. Believe me. (laughs) We'll also have travel news which we like to have every week, Javon's Travel Minute and the Culture Report. So let's go ahead and get into some travel news. How about some good news, or shall I say constructive news, because everybody's going to receive it in a different way. We're talking about an updated travel guide from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The actual guidance says, and this is as of April 2nd, 2021, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention updates its travel guidance for fully vaccinated people to reflect the latest evidence and science. Given recent studies evaluating the real world effects of vaccination, CDC recommends that fully vaccinated people can travel at low risk to themselves. A person is considered fully vaccinated two weeks after receiving the last recommended dose of vaccine. Fully vaccinated people can travel within the United States and do not need COVID-19 testing or post-travel self-quarantine as long as they continue to take COVID-19 precautions while traveling. We're talking about wearing a mask, avoiding crowds, social distancing, and washing hands frequently. Now, because of the potential introduction and spread of the new SARS-CoV-2 variants, differences in disease burden and vaccines and vaccine coverage around the world, CDC is providing the following guidance related to international travel. Fully vaccinated people can travel internationally without getting a COVID test before travel, unless, of course, it's required by the international destination and most still have that requirement. Fully vaccinated people do not need to self-quarantine after returning to the United States unless required by a state or local jurisdiction. Fully vaccinated people must still have a negative COVID test result before they board a flight to the United States and get a COVID-19 test three to five days after returning from international travel. And lastly, fully vaccinated people should continue to take COVID-19 precautions while traveling internationally. So again, you will still have to get a COVID test and produce a negative result before you can return to the United States. And that's within 72 hours of the time the sample was collected and the time you board that flight. So you want to make sure that you calculate that into your travel plans. And some people are excited about this news even before the news hit, because for 25 straight days, as of April 4th, over 1 million people per day have been screened at US airports. And that's just a sign that travel is rebounding in a slow way. We're still down about 40 to 50% pre-pandemic numbers. The Louvre has just put its entire art collection online so you can view it at home. So if you've never made it to Paris and the famed museum, if you have it in your travel plans and want to kind of get ahead of the game so you can really see what 
the Louvre has to offer, but also I'm thinking, because it is such a large body of work at the museum and it's such a huge museum, it'll give you some guidance on when you go, what exactly you want to see. We're talking about nearly 500,000 works of art available to everyone at your own pace, on your own device. So you can view some today, some tomorrow. I think it's wonderful. The museum's most famous works of art, like the Winged Victory, Venus de Milo, and of course, the Mona Lisa, are also available to peruse online, along with thousands of other items like paintings, sculpture, jewelry, furniture, textiles, and historical objects. The new database contains works from the Louvre and Paris's Musée National Eugène Delacroix, alongside sculptures from the nearby Tuileries and Carousel Gardens. Online viewers can also peruse the MNR works, that's the museum's National Museum Recovery, that were recovered following World War II and entrusted to the Louvre until they can be returned to their legitimate owners. You can also take advantage of the interactive map and virtually explore the museum room by room. The Louvre closed to visitors at the start of the pandemic, briefly opened over the summer of 2020 with new COVID precautions, but the museum remains closed to visitors at this time due to Paris's lockdown. And it's currently undergoing renovation, like adding new security systems, cleaning sculptures, and reorganizing entrances. But again, I see it as a great way that you can really plan for your next trip to Paris, or if it's not in your plan to see Paris and the Louvre, you can have it all right there online for you. Some more great news is that United is rolling out ambitious new plan to train at least 2,500 women and people of color as pilots by 2030. The airline industry as a whole, they have a shortage of pilots. United is announcing that new plan to train 5,000 pilots by 2030. United Airlines is the only major airline in the United States to own a flight school. And it says it's at least half of those trainees will be women or people of color. It's called the United Aviate Academy. Across the American airline industry, less than 6% of all pilots and flight engineers are women. Only about 10% of them are black, Asian, Hispanic, or Latino Americans. And just 7% of United Airlines pilots are women, which it says is one of the highest percentages in the industry. People of color make up only 13% of their pilots, and United's CEO, Scott Kirby, says they simply don't have the access or the opportunity, and they're aiming to change that. The Academy will have a focus on enrolling underrepresented groups and will allow potential trainees to apply for both partial and full scholarships because flight training costs, on average, of $100,000. The United CEO also said if you want to be a pilot, you either need to be in the military and get pilot training, or you've got to have the resources. And that's what they're aiming to change. What we really are doing is opening ourselves up to a huge pool of untapped talent and give them opportunities to create those kind of wonderful careers. United Aviate Academy is located at the Deer Valley Airport in Phoenix, Arizona. And you can get details at unitedaviate.com. That's A-V-I-A-T-E dot com. Now let's talk a little bit more about vaccine passports because everybody's talking about that. And on social media, that's all I see. All the news stories and all the conversations are about vaccine passports. A vaccine passport is a digitized or print certificate that proves an individual has been fully vaccinated to enter the region that has one of the lowest infection rates in the country, according to the government data. Now, currently governments, health authorities, airlines, and technology companies all over the world are grappling with how to ensure that such passports work seamlessly across borders. Vaccine passports and requirements are not a new concept, except for people who have traveled to a tropical location overseas. Now, if you have, and if you've gotten vaccines to travel before, you know it as the yellow card. It's called the yellow card because the card is yellow. And it's issued by a travel vaccine center or 
even your doctor's office, if they provide travel or vaccines for travel, they update your card manually to say which vaccine you've had, when you had it, and when it expires. So the yellow card is really what we're talking about when we talk about the vaccine passport. Nothing new, just making it digital is all we're doing. And it's most commonly used, I think, for the yellow fever vaccine. Has nothing to do with the name of the card, but yellow fever is really the only vaccine that is currently mandatory or required to enter some countries, not all countries. Ones that come to mind are like certain areas in Brazil, not all. Ghana, any place in Ghana, you have to have a vaccine for yellow fever. And then some other countries will say if you've been in an area that is a yellow fever area, then you have to show proof of a yellow fever vaccine, all of which until today would be on the yellow card. But again, we're talking about making it digital. And of course, it is highly related to the COVID-19 vaccine, but it's not only for the COVID-19 vaccine. As international borders begin to reopen, the COVID-19 vaccine requirements may be introduced similar to certain destinations that currently require a negative COVID test for entry. So the digital platform or format will house all of your vaccines. They're not doing it just for COVID-19, but it will certainly include COVID-19. And it's the one we're all talking about right now. But it would also include any other vaccines that you have. It'll also include information and requirements by country. And we're also talking about the COVID test and yet test result. And this is, of course, to diminish the chance for fraud. And that was one reason that they're saying, well, the yellow card can be reproduced too easily and too frequently. So let's look at a digitized format. Talking about the vaccine and the Centers for Disease Control and cruising. Yes, cruising is big, 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 big. And they've been put on hold or on ice, I shall say, for quite some time. And they're anxiously trying to get back in the waters, especially here in the United States, which they're hoping will be this July. But that date has been postponed a few times. So we'll see if it will stay true in July. However, these are the cruise lines with vaccine-related mandates so far. Saga Cruise Lines. Now, right now, they're in the United Kingdom, but they're saying that fully vaccinated passengers must be vaccinated two weeks before the trip. Royal Caribbean, the same. And there are different lines and different routes have come in at different times, but just about all of them right now are requiring everyone to be fully vaccinated again. That means two weeks prior to your sailing, you've had your last dosage or your second dosage. In some cases, there are restrictions like passengers 18 and older or 19 and older. That's because younger vaccines in most cases, 16 and younger are not getting the vaccine, but they will have to have a negative COVID test upon embarking. And the CDC is also putting requirements on the cruise ships that they do regular COVID testing during the cruising as well. Well, that's all I've got for travel news. And when I come back, I'll have Javon's Travel Minute and I'm taking you on a tour with me through Croatia from Split to Dubrovnik, the Dalmatian region. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Head on over to the website, TravelingCulturati.com. And while you're there, connect with me on social media. And now, Javon's Travel Minute. I just love Travel Tip Tuesday on our Facebook page. Every Tuesday is Travel Tip Tuesday when we invite our followers to post their travel tips. And I love the tips you share. It's a great way to share information and to pick up new tips. So if you haven't already, connect and like the Traveling Culturati Facebook page and join in the conversation. We would certainly like to hear your tips as well. Maybe you can pick up some new ones too. For example, my favorite tips from last week's post. Rose says, first, 
her credit card company must produce miles that she can use to cover flight and or hotel rooms as needed. So making sure that your purchases are earning you miles. And she's nuts about nuts. <laughs> so she always has pistachios, walnuts, almonds in a Ziploc bag. And then of course, with group trips as well, she recommends rooming with people by personality and cleanliness. Now, Brittany says that she always calls her bank to make sure they know that she's traveling, especially when she's going international. This is to avoid purchases being blocked while out enjoying your trip. You don't want to get that declined message just because you didn't call your bank and they think it's a fraudulent attempt. Here's another one to pack your shoes in shoe bags. This is of course for sanitation, to keep your dirty soles off of the rest of your clean clothes. Also pack a bag for dirty laundry, just an empty bag that you put in your luggage so that when you return, you can put all of your dirty laundry in that one bag. And while you're doing that, don't forget a very large plastic Ziploc bag in case you go to a destination and you want to get that last swim in and you have your bathing suit and it's still a little wet, you can put it in that Ziploc bag. And Rose chimed in and said that she never leaves home without two to three gallon plastic bags when she's traveling. And Sandra says that she likes to take red licorice and a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. She says it's really sunflower butter. And two red delicious apples on long flights. The apples clean your teeth until you can brush your teeth. Okay, and don't forget your playlists in your device so that you can have your music with you. This is Javon and that was your Travel Minute. Today I'm taking you on tour with me to Croatia. I recently went for a site inspection for our upcoming August trip, which will be August 27th through September 4, 2021. It's on a super yacht with only 18 cabins, so it'll be a small luxury group in true traveling culturati style. It's private, so only we are on that yacht. I traveled from Split to Dubrovnik and visited other islands via ferry. And of course, the group in August will be traveling in style via the private super yacht. So let's start with a little history of Croatia first, a little history and culture. It is certainly rich in history and culture. At first glance, you may not think of the destination as diverse, but it is. It's Mediterranean with blended cultures and history that are centuries. And then, of course, in their more recent history, just decades old. Remember, Croatia became a country just 30 years ago with its split from Yugoslavia. So here's the brief history. Croatia at one time, the Roman province of Pannonia was settled in the 7th century by the Croats. They converted to Christianity between the 7th and 9th centuries and adopted the Roman alphabet. The Hungarians conquered the country after a civil war in 1091. And then the two nations were united in 1102, with Croatia maintaining its autonomy. The Hungarians were defeated by the Turks, and Croatia, along with Hungary, elected Austrian Archduke as their king in 1526. Austro-Hungarian Kingdom was established in 1867, after which Croatia became part of Hungary until the collapse of Austria-Hungary in 1918 following its defeat in World War I. October 29, 1918, Croatia proclaimed its independence and joined Montenegro, Serbia, and Slovenia to form the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes. The name was changed to Yugoslavia in 1929. Germany invaded Yugoslavia in 1941. After Germany was defeated in 1945, Croatia was made a republic of the newly communist nation of Yugoslavia. After the death of the Yugoslavian leader in 1980, Croatia focused again on independence. In June 1991, the Croatian parliament passed a declaration of independence from Yugoslavia. Now, while the region was ruled for centuries by various foreign powers, Croatia remains a Western-oriented culture, always has. Now, let's talk about the geography. Croatia is on the Adriatic Sea with 1,100 miles of coast. It has 1,246 islands and islets have coastline of 2,522 miles. It's about the size of West Virginia, 
part of Croatia is barren, rocky region in the Dinaric Alps, but further to the north is very fertile land. So now, come along with me. First up, I'm talking to Pero on Split. I'm Pero, the guide in Split. We had a wonderful tour right now. We were walking in Split for two hours, and we see a beautiful architecture old buildings, Diocletian Palace, the UNESCO Palace that was built in the year 305, and it's now a part of the city of Split. So let's start with the history of Split and how it came to be, because we certainly have the history of Croatia, a fairly new country of 30 years this year, but Split has some significant history in Croatia as well. Of course, Croatia is a new country, but it is a continuation of the people living in this area from millennia. So in Split you can find even a Bronze Age culture, you can find uh, parts of the Greek culture, but most important is the Roman culture, part of the ruins from the Roman times. One very big city called Salona was just only five kilometers from Split, very important city in the Roman times, where Emperor Diocletian came from. He was a significant Roman emperor who lived in the third century. And at the end of the 3rd century, he resigned his throne and built a retirement home right here where we are sitting and speaking. And we call that today Diocletian's Palace. That palace survived the time for more than 1,700 years. It's still here because after the Roman Empire was collapsed, people continued to live inside of his palace, started a new Christian city. So where we were walking, we saw part of the palace, Diocletian's mausoleum, the basements, that is all today still visible in Split, and that is why the palace is UNESCO World Heritage Site. Later, Christians and people who lived here, Croatians are part of the Slavic group of people, they continue to live inside of his palace, and you can see not only Roman, but you can see the part of architecture from Romanesque period, Renaissance, Baroque, later from uh, Austro-Hungarian period. So before Austro-Hungarian was the Venetian Republic, then Austro-Hungarian period. Even the communism, ex-Yugoslavia was a communist country. You can see architecture from communist time inside of the palace. Today, Croatia is a 30-year-old country. We don't rebuild the old city anymore, so everything is a mixture of different styles from different periods of time. One thing I can certainly say and one thing I love is that it is a walkable city. We were able to do, and I'm sure we did a shortened version of it, but within just uh, a couple of hours, all centered around the palace. But we saw some wonderful things, especially that gave us an insight to the culture of Split here. One thing is that we're right on the Adriatic Sea, so that's very much a part of Split. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yes, the historical split, it was not that big. For Second World War, split had only 30,000 people. So this city center, very small area. Today, split is much bigger, but it also expanded into that different territories. That is where most of the people live. But because this small center was the historical center, that is where people gathered, that is everything was happening inside of this small area. When you come to split, you can explore the old city for maybe two, three days. Very small area, but much to see. Next to the old city is Adriatic Sea, a small hill with forest where you can cycle, walk. The old split today, of course, is a tourist site, so many restaurants, traditional restaurants, souvenir shops, hotels, Airbnbs, but also the city where the Adriatic Sea, uh, next to the old city, you can walk and enjoy the life. Sorry, I, I don't know if you asked that can edit, edit this. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to talk about the culture of fishing and the Adriatic Sea. So, of course, Dalmatia, this region of Croatia, historical region is called Dalmatia. So your listeners know about the dog. It was in the movie, 101 Dalmatian. And that dog originates from historical region called Dalmatia. Dalmatia is a name from Roman times. And today, people from South Croatia still identify as Dalmatians. So many songs are sang about Dalmatia. Dalmatia doesn't have a lot of soil where we can grow big farms. It's mostly rocky area. But we have uh, many islands, reefs that are full of fish. 
So historically, fish was very important source of food for people. Not just the source of food, also the export. export. So the sardines were catch salted for generations. All that tradition is carried on. So today you have these traditional restaurants that serve the food mostly from the sea. And Adriatic Sea is still fished. Unfortunately, these new fishing fleet are not traditional. They want to get as much as they can. That is not only Adriatic, all world is like that. So most of the seas in the world are overfished. But many of the parts of the coastline still have plenty of fish. And we can make it sustainable in the coastal area. And fishing market, we were walking next one of them today, right in the old city. Very charming fishing market. It gets fish from the very small-scale fisheries. And it's always have a variety of different species. Every species has its own story and different, different tastes. It goes with the different food. So we talked about Dalmatians originating here. And we learned something else that originated here, and that's what we call the Thai, but it's not originally called the Thai. Only the English and or Americans <laughs> call it the Thai. But this is one of the things that I love about traveling, is that you discover so many wonderful things that you never knew or never even thought about, like the origin of the Thai. Yes, in the 17th century, there was a big war called the 30-year war. It's one of the bloodiest war in Europe. European history. Croatian soldiers were part of that war and they have this piece of clothing tied to his, which the tradition said that a woman will put on a man before going to the battle, just to remember he's a woman back home. So the Croatian soldiers fought in France and rich French people like the King Louis XIV, they saw this as a fashion statement. They liked it and started to wear it just to show off and that is why in the whole world, the word for the Thai is kravat, which comes from the word croat in the French language. But somehow in the English-speaking world, it's not kravat. Some people call it kravat in the English-speaking world, but it's Thai. Here's a description of peka, a signature dish of Croatia's Dalmatia region. It's meats and vegetables cooked in a dome-like pot for hours. Folks, I'm sure you're hearing the clanking of the silverware and the plates, and we are actually dining as we're getting the explanation of peka. For regular times, we would eat here the peka. The peka is the typical meal for the Dalmatian hinterland. So uh, different types of meat. We usually take lamb is mandatory, veal also. We can put chicken, we can put pork inside. We put it all together in a, in a, in a quite big bowl made from metal, flat bowl. And we put this bowl on a preheated place. Preheated because we first make a fire on a fireplace, like fire with real woods. And we wait till this fire burns down, till we have hot coals. We would then remove the coals on the side and create a free spot. And on that free spot, which is now obviously hot, there was a fire there before, we would place the bowl with the meat on top of that hot place. And we would cover it then with bell-shaped lid, iron lid, we call it the bell or peka in Croatian. We would close this bowl then with the somewhat bigger peka. We would put the hot coals on top of the peka again. So we would have then heat from underneath and heat from above. And we would then leave it, uh, well, uh, baking like this for some, depending on the meat and the fire for some about 45 minutes. After 45 minutes, we would typically open the peka and the meat and the potatoes, which were put together at the same time at the beginning, we would then turn them around, we would flip them. What was beneath would come above. So we would stir it once, close the peka again and put again the hot coals on top and then for another up to 45 minutes. So the whole baking process is about one and a half hours, but then it comes out as a real delicatess. Uh, it's slow-cooked food, in fact. In fact. Yeah, it is slow-cooked food. Slow, slow cooked food. You can also make the bread like this, exactly. So on the same fireplace, mm-hmm. just without the bowl. So you put the, the, the bread like on, yeah, on the preheated mm-hmm. surface, full of ashes then, of course. It's okay. the kind of meal conversations are built around. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> then, you, then, then you have time. I mean, you need to sit there because it's an open fire yeah. in the middle of the house. You cannot leave it alone. So, and it was the only source of heat in the house. Nice. It was the, that was the warmest place in the house. 
Okay, and now imagine a cold day outside, you have a fire, you have time. Mm -hmm. Okay. No TV, and no show. No TV, no nothing. <laughs> no phone. Remember the number of children? <laughs> no. You know, connected, suited. Today is also a popular octopus underpecker. Today our friends at the seaside, they have also tried to use the underpecker. Obviously we don't have octopus. We cannot make octopus here. But they have also understood our concept of making the pekka and they're putting somewhere, I've seen also fish under the, uh, under the pekka. So there, there are some other types of food you can put under the pekka, but I, I hope you would agree that the meat... Or the meat is better, but the octopus is uh, in uh, many restaurants. Offered, 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 absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Which is also good because the, the, the way of making the pekka just gives you some flavor, it's done with open fire. Will not get better when it's colder, so please <laughs> yeah. open the buffet. Open the buffet. Uh, gnocchis, and well, what we are eating now is something completely different, but yet again, the name of this dish is Dalmatian Pashtizada. So it carries the name of our region in the name of the dish. It's stewed meat. It's wheel meat. It's a two-year-old wheel, so it's, it's older than half a year, actually between one and one and a half year old. And you need to marinate it and you need to prepare it in advance. So this is a dish which takes about two days of preparation. Are there some modern pekkas today that can really bring that to indoor no. cooking to modern? No. no, no. There are indoor variants, uh, electrical ones, not to be compared. I would say even if you tried the real pekka once and somebody would offer you two weeks later the one from the electrical oven. If you don't know the real one, when I can sell you anything. Right. But after tasting it once, you cannot be mistaken. Now I'm in Havar, so you can hear my guide in Havar telling us about the region and some of its specialties. Is Havar more of a tourist town in the summer, or do a lot of nationals come as well? Both. Uh, a lot of nationals come here. Havar is very, very popular, not just worldwide, but also in Croatia. It's one of those places that you have to come by. And also you will see a lot of locals here living. And it's not uh, that uh, local people just move away or that they're not here. You will meet a lot of locals. Everybody works here. All of the restaurants that we have here are by locals and mainly restaurants that are here for 20, 30 years. So you have a family-run restaurant, so it's not lost by that, by the tourism, which is one of the, I think, best things in Hvar. So once you come here, you can see the life of the locals here in the town, especially if you go to the bars, <laughs> especially if you go earlier in the morning. Then you will see and you will hear this talk of locals. Yeah, Early around 7, 30, 8 in the morning, uh, locals sit here in these bars and then you can see, you can hear the dialect, you can hear their talk, you can hear their troubles and worries and it's usually about uh, the tourism and how the season goes or things like that. But it's very, very lively, which you can catch uh, if you wake up earlier. What is the typical drink of the town? Oh, wine. <laughs> wine. Oh, you see, my friends, they haven't seen me in months. <laughs> wine is definitely our drink. However, of course, as the tourism started, cocktails started to be a thing. So we have this uh, really, really nice drink that, I mean, mojito is very popular. Mm. But because Hvar is also very known as the lavender island, we have a lavender mojito. So it's kind of a thing in Hvar, yeah? They put a little bit of lavender, so it gives this flavor of Hvar town. I'll have uh, to try that. We yeah, have, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, now it's closed. Yeah. But, uh, yes, I'm going to take you one time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We have on our social media Thirsty Thursdays, so we like to know about different and local drinks. Yes. So we'll have to but try that But let me one. tell you a little bit also about the wine. So wine is, of course, everybody has it, yeah? But in Hvar, good quality wine was before, so to Venetians and it wasn't something that local people were drinking. Besides that, everybody, every 
family, even up to this day today, let's stop here for a second, even up to this day today, every family that has vineyards, they produce their own wine. And so sometimes that wine is really good, sometimes not so much. <laughs> so what we have, we were putting water in wine, which of course every good winemaker will tell you no. But we did that. And also glass of wine is something that we would always have after lunch, you know. So even if you're a kid of 10 years old, you're going to have a sip of a glass of wine with water. Yeah, so we call it bevanda. Bevanda. Yes. And if you put a little bit of sparkling water, then it's called gemisht. Oh, okay. Yeah. So like, it's mainly with the white wine. Like a spritzer, but gemisht. Like a spritzer, gemisht. Yeah. <laughs> gemisht. <laughs> okay, I wanted to show you this building. This is a, and we're going to go up the stairs if you feel mm-hmm. like it. Uh, this is one of the most important buildings here in Hvar. I told you that Venetians were coming here from the open sea and staying here in this really, really well-protected harbor and port. So they decided to build this building. This building for Venetians is very important. It's called Arsenal. Arsenal was a place where they kept their boats. So at the very beginning, oh, we have some music here. So at the very beginning, uh, this area where we are standing now was actually sea. And the boats were coming directly inside and there were no roof above. And this is where they would keep their boats. The uh, workers would come from the other side. They would repair boats and leave them there for the winter time. Yeah? So this is after the fortress, uh, the, the second building that was built and the most important building for Venetians. You're hearing lots of sounds because I'm actually taking you on tour with me, which means that we are walking and talking. And so there's a lot of background noise. You might hear some music that just started in the park. Very lovely. But we also have a construction worker who's banging away <laughs> almost almost to a beat. That's the sound that you're hearing. <laughs> yeah. Let's go up to these stairs here. I want to show you what this uh, building is, let's say, hiding a little bit. And something what, uh, that uh, many people who actually come to Hvar do not know and then somehow they find out later and are very surprised and this is something uh, that I say about Hvar that it has so many um, hidden things it's not just a beach destination it's not just a party destination it's really really big in culture yeah? so people here as well have been living in this cultural town for centuries and centuries so it's a little bit different than your usual small town when you talk to people when you hear the history. A nice finish to my trip was at a local farm where I had Pekka and some great conversation. Let's start with a toast. He's going to say and I'm going to translate. So God give you health and wealth. To everybody under this beam because we are under the beams. Where this year and God's health and the next one? Kako ono ioče ako Bogda. As it would if the God gives. Ja kažem. Amen da Bogda. Vi ponavljate amen da Bogda i podižete čaše i nadravljate. So he says amen and then we says amen and cheers. Amen da Bogda. Amen da Bogda. Živjeli. Cheers to that. Živjeli. We're here at a local house with the freshest ingredients you can find and a very warm host. What's the name of the house where we are again? Bakichevo, household Bakichevo. And the products that we are sampling? Two types of brandies and five types of liqueur plus uh, dry figs and sugar-coated orange peels. The sugar-coated orange peels are really good. It's the really the peels that give you that bitterness, but then the sugar is really good. But I'm told that when you come, you have to have grappa before you start anything. Yeah, grappa um, or herb brandy. Grappa or herb months. brandy. Okay. And the local herbs that are used? All different types of herbs. I cannot, I cannot, say, I cannot say anything in particular, but what I can see, there's a little bit of rosemary inside. Sometimes somebody put lavender or some... Uh, berries they have, sometimes even bits of myrtle, but there's also special myrtle myrtle liquor going on. So any kind of potentially healthy herb that could be used in some kind of local medicine, old-fashioned medicine, is used in the brandy. Maybe they say, no, they don't say what they have here. So this is one of the herbs. (laughs) 
Very nice. And as a digestive, really, to help your stomach. And with the natural herbs, it's because it's the herbs from the area. So it's just going to help settle your stomach and prepare your stomach, really, for some of your local fairs. And what's great is that there are fig and orange trees. So when I say the products are fresh, they are really fresh. Uh, They're picked right here, and then the products are produced here as well. What are the different flavors? Wormwood. And this is? The wormwood. That's for stomach problems. So if you have a stomach problem, you drink a wormwood liquor, and it helps you digest and helps you heal the stomach problems. Then you have the myrtle. Everybody probably knows what the myrtle is. It's a beautiful red-colored, sweet kind of lady kick but it's nice. Then sour cherry. Then something quite special for the region is a dry fig liquor. So from dry figs and from kumquat. It's a very sweet, almost kind of like a syrupy liqueur. So I'm going to finish the tasting, so I'll come back. Now what I loved about Croatia, the quaintness of it, the sea, the food, the culture, the crystal clear waters, that I just can't wait to get back to in August. And I hope you'll join me then. And I hope you've enjoyed today's show. When I come back, I've got the culture report. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm Javon Harley, your host and travel pro. The website, travelingculturati.com. Check it out and also follow us on social media and join the Travel Club. We're going to Croatia on a super yacht, August 27th through September 4th. So you make sure you want to join us and come with. It's going to be a fabulous trip. Culture is forever changing and reflecting what's happening in the society and with its people. It can be born from the arts, music, food, and sometimes politics and strife. This is the Culture Report, continuing our conversation on Croatia. My last stop was Dubrovnik, and Nikolai in Dubrovnik literally wore me out walking the perimeter of the old town but boy was it worth it so check it out here i'm now in dubrovnik folks i have traveled from split to brach and tavar and today i'm in dubrovnik and i am with nikola yes He's going to be guiding me here. And as I said, I'm taking you on tour with me. And Nikola has already told me just a few things about Dubrovnik. But one of the things I want to say, so let's start with the pronunciation, because in America we often say Dubrovnik, but we put the emphasis on the wrong part of the word. So what's the proper way? Dubrovnik. Dubrovnik. So we say the do first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, you said that the original settlers were Byzantine and uh, they came from the Roman... They came from the other side of the Big Bay, from today's settlement Tsavtat, ancient Epidaurus, that was also founded first by the Greeks then and settled by the Romans. And in the 7th century, the Byzantines fled from there, running away from the Avars and the Slavs to found what we today know as Dubrovnik or the old town Dubrovnik and then later on became a town of Dubrovnik, of course. Now, geographically speaking, Dubrovnik is in what part of the country? Geographically, Dubrovnik is on the very end, at the very south part of Croatia, because from here there are 60 kilometers or about 40 miles or so, was that, to the Montenegrin border. So this is the last town in Croatia, because after Dubrovnik there are no more official towns In Croatia, we have some small areas that we call towns because historically they were old towns, but now they are just settlements, not a town. So we are the last town at the very south of Croatia. And before the settlers came, what about the indigenous people? Who was here? Who were the indigenous people? The first kind of modern Homo sapiens here were the Illyrian tribes. The descendants of the Illyrian tribes are now living in Albania, so they are actually Albanians. But here we didn't have much foundings in the area of Dubrovnik. We have much more in Konavle region because that's where the field is. If you turn around, you can see that this area is not quite good for farming or anything like that. So that's why you did not have a town 
placed here. That's why you had Tsautat, mm-hmm. because around Tsautat you're going to see a lot of fresh water, fields where the old people can grow crops. And that's why the Greeks found their city there and the Romans came after them and then only Dubrovnik later on in the medieval times. Okay, we'll come back to you later. And again, we're doing this as it happens, so you will hear a lot of background noise. So I hope you can hear the sea in the background, that it's a wonderful sound, but occasionally you'll hear some cars drive by. So I understand Dubrovnik is the land of Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah, Game of Thrones was filmed here for seven seasons. The town of Dubrovnik plays King's Landings, so the central city of power in the TV series. And we are standing right here at the spot where Cersei ends her famous walk of shame. So people who like Game of Thrones and have enjoyed watching Game of Thrones, if you do come to Dubrovnik, you also can do not just the history walk, but you can do the Game of Thrones walk around the town. Okay, I'll have to take your word for it. (laughs) But whether you're into the Game of Thrones or not, it's a beautiful walkthrough. And this is called The Fortress? No, this is the old town. The old town. The old town. The, the old town is a walled town. So we have a wall that goes around the town in length of 1.3 miles. So 1.3 miles long wall that goes all around the town and it's walkable. It is a museum, you have to pay the entrance. But once you get on one entrance, you can walk all around it back to the entrance you came up. So it's now an exit when you get out, of course. So, Nicola, where we started on our walk around the walled city, the old city, what was the highest point? Because we've already passed the highest point. We passed the highest point on Fort Minchata. was 49 meters above the sea level. So maybe not that high, maybe not, not, not that high, but the view that is provided from the top of that tower is just spectacular, just magnificent, and probably one of the top views for every person who come to the town, tourist, businessman, local, we all love going up to the top if you want to have some awesome photo of the town taken. And where we are now, is this considered maybe the halfway point around or this, this is the older part? This is kind of halfway point or a turning point because we did just the last climb up. On the wall we have 1,080 stairs. So imagine how beautiful leg day you have when you're climbing the wall of Dubrovnik. So now we did our last big climb, and from here we only have straight and down, and we are walking the south side of the wall. It's kind of a promenade, because we are walking by the sea, we have a beautiful sea view, we have beautiful bars here, we can sit, have a drink, of course in normal times, currently we are still in COVID measures, but this is like you are walking the beach, or you're walking the strand, and you're enjoying yourself. So the wall is 1.3 miles long and there are three entrances. And if you start here from the south side first, maybe you will get too hot or too tired. And then you will see the northern side is just going up, 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 and you will decide it's just too hot, I'm going down. But don't do that because if you don't do the northern side of the wall and go that 49 meters above the sea level on that Fort Mincheta, you will lose the sights or you will not have the sights of the old town from the wall. And this area, I'm noticing that the walkway is much more narrow than where we were before. Yes. Uh, It's narrower because the cannons from the sea, from the ships, were much less powerful than the ones from the mainland because the south side is facing the sea. We are above the cliff. You can tell the listeners that the fall from here is also quite spectacular, God forbid, to happen. So that's why it's much narrower. Here, this part of the wall is between 5 and 9 feet thick or narrow, while the north and the west part, the part of the wall that is facing the mainland, they say it's sometimes up to 48 feet thick, all to stop the cannonball penetrating through the wall. So, Nicola, you were telling me about the orders of monks and how they were with the town and of course there were two different sides so I'd like you to explain that for me. We have currently in the town two fully functional monasteries one of the Dominicans and the other of the Franciscans. The Dominicans were always associated with the rich so with the nobles and the rich merchants and they have white robes the white monks because they never got dirty because they were going into fashionable homes providing all the necessary uh, religious 
things for the rich. While on the other hand, the Franciscans, they have their dark robes because they were with the poor. They were helping the, the common folk of the town. And one of the most important things about the Franciscans is that in 1317, they formed town's first pharmacy. Even today, in 2021, the pharmacy in the Franciscan monastery is still fully functional. So this small town in one of the hottest parts of the world, I don't mean by the heat, but by the wars waged in this area, has something continuously for 700 plus years working in the same building. So the pharmacy never left. The Franciscan monastery is still there, but of course now it's a much more modern. Also, uh, St. Clair nuns, parts of the Franciscan order took care of the orphanage children. They also had an orphanage running in the town. They're always taking care of the town's orphans. So people in the town today are much more associated with the Franciscans than with the Dominicans. But both monasteries are still alive. We have monks and they also have beautiful museums inside their monastery and cloister areas. And also the old town has been declared a UNESCO site and you were saying that it's one of the first or maybe the first socialist country to allow UNESCO to come in. Yes, former Yugoslavia in 1979 was actually the first communist socialist country that allowed, or if you want to call that uh, a country, well, we were not actually behind the Iron Curtain. We were the first country in front of the Iron Curtain, but we didn't have democracy kind of government. We had the Socialist Communist Party in the way, but they allowed in 1979 because they were quite pro-Western thinking kind of government that they allowed UNESCO people to enter Yugoslavia and to point out the world interest locations like Dubrovnik, for instance, here, or Zadar, Split, Plitvice Lakes, very famous Plitvice Lakes and waterfalls, so something like that. So we were here in this part of the world, the first who have UNESCO protected world heritage. We forget about how not so long ago it was, but one of the signs that we see is about the aggressions in 1991 through 1995. Was there damage to the old town? Yes. The Homeland War, as we call it, the time of the battle for independence of Croatia, the time of disintegration of Yugoslavia, the town, unfortunately, was hit very hard. Nobody thought in the summer of 1991 that those things will happen to Dubrovnik because Dubrovnik had no army. Dubrovnik had no military facilities. Dubrovnik was on the very end. We have no Serbian minority as big to be a majority in this area. So there was nothing in this town to show or to tell that this town might be, unfortunately, the target of the former Yugoslav army supported by the locals. So what happened unfortunately here in October 1991, as we are, let's say, surrounded by the neighboring countries of Bosnia, Herzegovina and Montenegro, from those areas, former Yugoslav army supported by the locals of those areas, not locals in Croatia, started attacking the area of the town and around the town and completely besieging the town from the beginning of November 1991 till May of 1992, cutting off the electricity, the water supplies or any kind of supplies that would come in a normal, fashionable way to the town, leaving the town to defend itself and the town was very, very badly damaged. All the UNESCO protected World Heritage Site, as you just heard, 65% of the old town core was very badly damaged. Nine buildings were completely burned down to the ground, and when the peace finally came in 1995, the reconstruction started, and it took about five and a half million roof tiles to rebuild the town roofs. So that's why when you today look at the town from the above, it's all mainly orange, but that's something that comes from a recent history. Once again, I hope you'll join me on our adventure of Croatia aboard a private superyacht with only 18 cabins sailing from Split to Dubrovnik, August 27 to September 4, and with an optional extension for three nights in Dubrovnik until September 7. Well, that's it for the show today. Wherever you go, go with all your heart. Confucius. Ladies and gentlemen. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Ladies and gentlemen.